Hello and welcome to another episode of EduThink, the podcast that talks about education in South Africa so that parents can make better decisions for their children's future. A couple of weeks ago, we encountered a video by a crazy tattooed guy who's visited us at the school before. And it was all about happiness and hobbies and work and a whole bunch of things that just really caught our attention, uh, particularly since the children at the school still talk about uh, the time he visited. Mrs. Acheson couldn't resist calling him back in, gave him a shout, and we're really excited to have with us today, da -da -da -da, drum roll, Richard Mulholland. Richard, Richard welcome. Hello there. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be fun. <laughs> Perhaps... Uh, Tell us why you thought it was so important that you looked Richard up and, and asked him to come chat to us today. Well, Richard's quite prolific on social media. And since he visited us at EduInc, I've been following what he does. And he's one of the speakers that they often talk about when we talk about who they want to hear from. And they'll say things like, hey, can you get Tattoo Guy back? And what about the, I mean, sorry, Rich, your name kind of fell by the wayside and you just became Tattoo Guy. So I don't know, TG. I think can that's iconic. Back? Yeah, he's iconic now. So when I saw one of Rich's posts that was actually not on what he normally does, which is uh, to do with presentations, you know, he trains CEOs and TED speakers and, and people like that all over the world on presentation and, and, and how you deliver unforgettable presentations, which is what he spoke to our kids about. I thought, you know, I've got to connect with Rich again and, and delve into this particular YouTube that I had watched of his. So just to give the quick bio, Rich is the founder of Missing Link. He's the chief evangelist. That's what he likes to call himself of Missing Link. And it's all about how to give presentations and really activate your audiences when you are doing that. Rich, am I right in saying, I seem to remember you were saying, I think you were the first TED speaker, South African TED speaker. Is that right? Yeah, I got in by a bit of a lucky default. When I went to TED Global in 2005, it was the first time TED had come across the pond. So TEDx hadn't been launched yet. And then they said they're putting together this program and they want a bunch of people to uh, submit ideas for a three-minute talk. So I was like, okay, cool, I accept. And I put forward to do a talk called First Impressions Lie. And they accepted it. And so that was it. That was my, my three-minute claim to fame. But I look so terrible. I've got the video. <laughs> I look so terrible on the DVD they sent me that I've never watched the whole three minutes. My slides <laughs> broke halfway through and I'm a presentation guy. Uh, I ended up jumping around on the stage trying to point to things. My, my highlight was um, at this stage I'd known Seth Godin uh, fairly well. And uh, at the end of the talk, he ran up to me because like, I had to really make this thing work, uh, considering that nothing was. And he ran up to me and he said, did you hear me whoop? Did you hear me whoop? <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that he said to me twice, did you hear me whoop, was like made the whole thing worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. What a great story. I remember when I was looking through your bio earlier, I was looking online at the bio and I was looking at all the books you've written and all this kind of thing. And um, your bio ends with, I think, what we might be actually delving more into today, which is that you are a husband, father, son, brother, and uncle. That's obviously a really important aspect of your life. And considering that we're having a conversation today that's going out to a whole lot of our pupils, our learners, our teachers, our parents, I think that's maybe the focal point. And let's go back to that, that YouTube clip. You started it by saying that you are often asked why you're always so happy. And you used that 
as your departure point to discuss your hobbies. And you spoke about hobbies from childhood right through to an adult and how important that they are in your life. So do you want to just dive into that for us a little bit, Rich, and talk to us about why your hobbies make you happy, how you balance that, and then let's take it from there. All right. So there's a couple of things and a couple of parts to this. The first thing is I think that we've been sold down a river. And the river we've been sold down is the idea that being successful is going to make you happy. And I actually don't think that's the case. In fact, what I say in that video is that you don't get to check the success box until you check the happy box. And I know that because I'm around entrepreneurs all the time, and I, I can't tell you how many of them on any metric of business success are more successful, way, way, way more successful than I am, but they're not happy. And they're constantly at work and they're constantly putting their, their soul into their work and they go home and they always say, I just want to get home and I want to switch off. But you know, I've got the kids there, I've got to do this. And I sit there and I think, wow, this is so broken because I have way less maybe financial resources than you, but I go home every day. I, you know, the end of the day comes or maybe a bit early if I feel like it. And I go and I engage with my hobbies and I'm just generally a much happier person. Like I'm a very happy person. And I realized that this, this role of hobbies was a big part to play with that. So I refer to them as recreational obsessions. Now, typically what happens is people are only really obsessed with their work, with their vocation. But I have a number of obsessions that feed me. So, you know, again, when the lockdown happened, I, you know, I love, I love reading fiction. I love board games. There's, I love riding my electric skateboard. Like I, I like uh, snowboarding. There's a lot of things, motorcycle riding that I'm obsessed with. And being able to move into one of those recreational obsessions and to shift my state, I think is what's allowed me to be happy. I don't switch off at the end of a workday. I switch on something else. And that's a big part of what I think where my, my enjoyment of life comes from. Yeah, I, I remember you were talking about you're excited about your workday and you're excited about ending your workday because you had so much to look forward to after the workday. But because you were changing state, you were moving into a different creative space that allowed you to be excited to go back to work the next day. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for example, today, right? So I'm going to be finished about 4.30 today. And my son and I, we're going to play a game of Tash Kalar. It's a arena combat board game that we want to play and we just got two new factions so we're quite looking forward to that and then at six o'clock myself and my son and my daughter we all go to jiu-jitsu and you know that's the thing we're going to do together and then you know everyone's going to do their own thing after that so i'm looking forward to these states but then what happens is i come back to work the next day and maybe one part of a metaphor that was introduced to us at jiu-jitsu to teach us a specific move, maybe something that I apply to, uh, you know, a conversation that I'll have at work tomorrow. And this happens more and more often than you would think. You know, people often say to me that I think outside the box, but I don't think I do. I just think I have more boxes to draw from. You know, you cannot output anything that you didn't input first. And most people only input stuff in their vocation. And I think that makes you very narrowly focused. 100%. I agree with that completely. And it ties into that philosophy of thinking or that theory of thinking that we often see in business books and, and even in TED Talks and that where people are saying you should work your passion. And because if, you, if you're working your passion, you'll never work a day in your life and all that sort of thing. And I, I'm not convinced that that's the answer because it, it does feel very narrow. It seems a very narrow approach. Uh, so what's your take on that theory? Yeah, so my first book I wrote is called Legacide, and I actually go to war with that idea quite early on. 
I, th I really, really think it's problematic. If I did what I loved, I'd be a pizza delivery guy. You know, I, would, I love motorcycles. You know, if I wanted to ride motorcycles all day, I'd go get a job for take a lot or something like this, right? That's not what I want to do. And in fact, what you invariably find is that people who do what they love end up not. So my son wants to get into game design. And that's partially because of not so much the games he plays, but actually the board game stuff. They've been designing board games for me for my, for my birthday for years and these kind of things, you know. And so this is something that he wants to look at. But the, the people that he's been speaking to who are, who are in video games, they all tell him the same warning. Just be, be ready to let go of your love because you're not going to feel like playing video games when you come home after a day of video gaming. And he's okay with that. He's like, okay, fine. Like, I'm happy to make this my vocation and have another recreational obsession. And I'm sure there will be some times he wants to play. But I, I think that when you say yes to something being your primary vocation, then it's no longer your recreational obsession. You'll need to find something new. Uh, whereas instead of doing what you love, learn to love what you do. So I do presentations for goodness sake. Like I make, help people be better at PowerPoint. I didn't get into that because I loved it. I got into it because I hated it. I thought presentations were so bad. And as entrepreneurs, we fix a problem or we fill a gap. You guys are changing the way people think about education. You're doing things differently. You didn't do that because you loved it and you felt everything was perfect. You didn't chase your passion. You chased your frustration and you executed on that. And the other byproduct of that, by the way, is if you do what you love, then it already works. That means the opportunity there is, is somewhat less if you find something that frustrates you and you fix it, well, then there's a market there because people you know, can tap into that. So I always say chase your highest frustration and then fall in love with solving the problem. And you can still love your work. Find something you hate and fix it. You will have the best day ever. I hear a whole lot of voices sitting on my shoulder of moms who have teenage sons. And one of the biggest demons that they have to deal with as a family is their children's or their teenage boys' obsessions with gaming or anime or art or digital art or doing something digitally. And this is a conversation that I have quite often with them because, like you, I have a lot of extracurricular curiosities and passions that I look forward to at the end of the day. If it's not servicing and tinkering on the Land Rover, then it's playing Dungeons & Dragons or doing robotics or 3D printing for Dungeons & Dragons or robotics or it's archery or something like that. And a lot of those, like you, are childhood obsessions that I've brought through into adulthood. And there's two conversations that I have with parents at that point. And the first is, it's often an and or an or conversation, and they see it like that. And the conversation that I have to have with them is that it can be an and conversation. I can be good at school and do all the schoolwork, and I can do gaming, and I can do sport, and I can have an exciting life. But when you're not managing that and the exciting stuff becomes the 100% focal point and obsession and you're not doing the work part, then often the parents have to step in and it's an or conversation. You'll do your schoolwork or you will do your, your passion and curiosity. And often that's quite demeaning because then nobody's got anything that is exciting that they can look forward to at the end of the day. I, I also think... You know, a lot of people worry about, you know, this game design thing and, you know, getting into video games. And this is just, yeah. a, you know, it's, it's first of all, we need to understand that what's big in our world isn't big in their world. You know, what's big <laughs> in my world isn't big in your world. And sure. that's, that's an important point of departure. 
this video game thing that they see as being a distraction for their kids. Video games are currently larger. So it's a $70 billion industry, which is bigger than the $50 billion Hollywood industry and the $20 billion or $19 billion professional American sports industry. Getting into the video game industry, you can be an accountant, a designer, a writer, a set designer, a, you know, uh, there's so many different things there. Your kids are training. They're learning if that's a field they wanted to get into. You know, they're learning in their obsession at this stage. And again, this will hold them in good stead. So even if they become an accountant in this, in maybe a field that they're passionate about, uh, they get a job at one of the big game publishers and then they are able to make their recreational obsession work. That's okay. So right now, what I think at this stage, I think we should be encouraging our kids to chase anything that gets them excited. All I want is my kids, um, okay, and I, you're gonna have to probably bleep this, but we talk about having a gas tank. All I want are my kids' gas tank, their give a tank to be full. The biggest problem with the world today is people who have an empty gas tank. If your mm. give a tank is empty, you're not gonna be motivating yourself to do anything. My son is very motivated by doing a destiny, getting onto destiny, meeting with his friends. You know, it took me ages to, to realize that, that the four ki kids, other kids that he's been speaking to online for the last five years are his best friends. He's met two of them in person. And for a while I was like, this is so crazy. And then I realized, you know, I speak to my best friends on Zoom all day long and I, you know, one of them just moved to England. I don't see him every day. Like, like this is the reality we're in. So who am I to judge? what his friendship should be like. Not all schools are created equal. Choosing the right school for your child is one of the most important decisions that you as a parent can ever make. Education Incorporated is a registered private school in four ways, with very small classes focused on academic excellence. By prioritizing the best interests of our children, we guide them to become the very best version of themselves. Visit educationincorporated.coza and decide if our vision and values match your aspirations for their future. Education Incorporated. Make the change. What I'm curious about is recreational activities that are either lean forward and active and passive recreational activities. And I see things like computer games developing things like strategy and focus and, as you said, team building and connectivity with other people. And it's an active process, whereas sitting watching TV is quite a passive process and there's not much brain activity happening in that space. And quite honestly... I'd rather have a child who's actively involved in a recreational activity that's promoting curiosity and passion and that obsession you're talking about than somebody who's lying back, you know, eating chips or popcorn, watching TV where there's no actual mental activity happening at that time. There was a great book I read years ago, maybe when my, my son's 18 now, he's in matric. I, I read it when he was maybe, I don't know, seven or eight. And it was called Everything Bad is Good for You. And the entire premise was they explained, and this was already back then, the amount of thought processes. And so in board game, I, I rate in board games my enjoyment based on a decisions per minute scale. How many meaningful decisions do I have to make in a minute? And if I try to compare that to what my son is doing, he has to make decisions per second. Right, he is making decisions per second. That guy just ran out there. He is w using this weapon. He's got that armor. This weapon I have is not going to work with that armor. I'm going to be jumping up across this. I've got to move out of the way of his weapon. I've got to switch my weapon to a different thing. And I should probably be moving forward. And I've got to time it because my weapon is optimized to do something at you know, 0.3 seconds after he moves into my range. 
and fires it and then gets a headshot and makes a video of it and shows it to me at dinner. Now that's, that's the computational processing that video gamers are doing. And parents are getting upset with them that, that um, they're just vegging their life away. My son's ability to compute and make good decisions under stressful situations, because it is stressful for him, is very real. This is not bad for you. This is a very, very lean-in hobby. And it's a cooperative hobby. So he's, he can't do it by himself. He has to work with other people. I think we were going to see a very positive upswing of behavior because of the level of decision-making that this generation is having to do. And then, by the way, while he's doing that, he's watching YouTube videos on the side with other guys streaming. And invariably, if it's a break, he'll be checking out, you know, an anime, as you mentioned, or something like this, or sorry, a manga. So one of the things that I'm, I'm hearing right now is a parent saying, but the schoolwork's not getting done in the marks are low because it's interfering with the learning process and the studying process. Yeah, so I mean, I guess that would be true as well. And we have to have the balance. So my son isn't allowed to play games during the week. That's, that's the rule we, we set up for sure. him. Then he's very happy with that. And, and that's it. On a Wednesday, uh, if he wants to, he can do it like an hour and a half with his mates to give him a little bit of a midweek break that, that he does. And I guess you've all, everyone's got to have their own system. The thing is, I don't want to rob my kid of the thing that he's passionate about. But yeah, so I, th I do think that there is a loss However, uh, years ago, a friend of mine, Dustin Botha, he's, um, he brought Skull Candy into the country. He sat down with, with my son, Callum, and he said, Cal, school is hackable. He said, imagine you have to be there anyway. He said, all my friends would go into class and they'd mess around the whole time they're in class, and then they'd have to come home, and then they would have to cut into their game time or whatever it was, in his case, surfing time, uh, by doing all the homework. He said, the way I hack school is I realized I have to be there anyway. So I'm just obsessively attentive when I'm at school and I try to get absolutely everything done during school hours so I can get home and switch off. And this has been my son's mindset. So he gets most of what he has to do at school. His teachers are generally happy with him. But uh, other than that, he's like doing better than I've ever done. So I, I can't really, I, 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 his, every report card is better and more positive for his teachers than anything I've ever done. And I never see him doing homework. So... I don't know what's going on. Kids are a little alien. <laughs> no, you see, this is really interesting because for the last two years, we've been dealing with a COVID situation. Now, very, very quickly, when this all happened in March last year, we started schooling from home. And it was within 48 hours we had our kids going and we haven't missed an hour of school and they've, they've, we've did full curriculum, face-to-face -face teaching, you know, all of that. But one of the things that we quickly discovered was that to be successful online takes a, a specific pattern of behaviors. Because what we were finding is that the kids don't necessarily have the skill set yet, because they've never needed it before, to be able to engage in the classroom while navigating all these other distractions that they want to be engaged in. So there'd be a Discord chat going on over there and the manga video is going over there and the YouTube video on how to improve my Minecraft skills is going over there at the same time. So I like what you're saying about be obsessive about your schoolwork so that you can do all of those things later on and have the and situation. You can have your Discord chats and, and all of these things and your schoolwork. It doesn't need to get to the point of an or situation as long as we're managing the balance correctly. And it sounds like, Rich, that your, your role as a parent in this space has been to help manage the and so that it is an and conversation. 
And it's by setting those boundaries within the house that, as you said, I know my son, I know what's going on, I know the family values, and you can game on the weekend, but during the week you don't have access to that. On Wednesdays you can connect with your friends on Discord, and obviously in the holidays there will be different rules depending on what needs to happen. So it sounds like the parental role is clearly defined and it's understood and the expectations are understood. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. And that's with my son who needs it more. My daughter, she's much more self-regulating. She, you know, goes to bed at the right time, does her own thing. She's way more organized. So, uh, you know, I have a whole different set of rules there. Uh, she's 13. She kind of sets the rules. Uh, so, so, that, so, so, so that's a thing. But um, yeah, I think that's I think that's spot on. But again, like I'm just making this up as I go along. Like we're just like we're just kind of trying to pretend <laughs> yeah. totally trying to pretend that I know what I'm doing here, and and it's 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 really tricky to get it right. And you know, Callum will constantly try and push back that he should be allowed this. Like with Bailey, at least with Bailey is she's still at the stage where she's just constantly trying to find new things. And I'd like, she'll, she'll watch one bit of TV on repeat. So she will watch Gilmore Girls over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And she'll watch her favorite episodes over and over. And the reason she likes to do that is she likes to have that in the background while playing something on Minecraft, uh, listening to K-pop, like in one earphone, and, and she does her makeup. She's now trying to become, do horror makeup. So she wants to do all these horror faces. She comes in, she's actually got a scar down her face. And like, I think that, I don't know if that's a loss. Like that, it worries me. Cause I always want to say to her like, like Bailey, just focus on one thing, like pick something and go deep in it. They get your concentration. But I think her brain craves distraction, like cognitive candy now. And uh, she needs like those hits. I find this whole topic fascinating because Traditional research or traditional studies suggest that as human beings, our brains are not physiologically capable of multitasking. They say there's a transaction cost every time we switch between two different things. But I can't help wondering if that has evolved and changed in these younger generations, these alphas that are, you know, the generation alphas and that, that are coming through now. Because they I do... I don't think we evolved that quick. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely are managing these multi-platform situations way better than I ever thought they, they would. So they um, And as I say, we often. can't train them. Yeah. And as you said, it's cognitive candy. I think it's uh, a good hit to be able to do that. Maybe there's something in the transactional cost that, that stimulates the brain. I'm not sure. So there is something else that I'd like to just dive into, please. And that's to go back to the, the happiness, success ratio that you were discussing and um, how your hobbies are and, and how you get passionate about them and you get obsessive about them and it makes you happy. You know, one of the huge things that we're dealing with right now this year is anxiety in the children. There's massive anxiety and it has definitely increased. It's definitely higher than we've ever encountered as a school before. And what we're seeing is more avoidance behavior when it comes to the downtime. So that's the Netflix and chill because I don't feel that I can engage. I don't have the energy left. I'm, I, it, I'm being dragged down. What is your advice to adults and kids about how to reignite that and how to find the bits that make you happy and, 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 and excited again? I can't speak for kids. Like, I actually don't. Sometimes I think about the stuff they go through. And the demands of being a young human are higher, way higher than I can possibly imagine right now. And so I can't begin to, to, to explain to them how to navigate the, the realities of this. But 
I do think finding common interest groups, and that's why, you know, when my, both my kids really, really like uh, manga and anime, and, you know, we just lean into all of those things. If they're leaning into something, again, that's filling their tank. Our job as parents should never be to empty the tank. Our job as parents should always make sure the tank is as full as possible. It doesn't matter. You don't have to understand it. They're not asking you to read them and watch them. I mean, in fact, occasionally if they do, you really should. Uh, You know, we did watch, there's one publisher that both the kids really like. We watched some of their films together as a family. Because now watching, I don't know what it's like in your houses, watching TV together is an event. It's like once a month we try to do something together as a thing. The, the, why we still have TV rooms in our homes as central meeting areas is completely and utterly beyond me. Because a television is no longer a staging area for the family. Like, with, you know, so, that, but that's a whole other conversation we could have around that. Like the restructuring of homes to suit the purpose of when we get together. Uh, I think that that has changed fundamentally. I have a board game table. I, I would advise that for everyone. What I'm what I'm curious about, Rich, is how your children have got into this curiosity. You talk about doing a lot of things together as a family, and there's a conversation I have quite often with parents who are really struggling to engage the curiosities of their children, and they will go bike riding with them, and they'll go to cricket with them, and they'll do a whole lot of things with them. And I have found, well, the conversation that I have with them is that, in my experience, I have a lot of curiosities and things that I really like doing, and I open the space for them to join me in those curiosities and passions. And if I find something interesting that they're doing that I'd like to be exposed to, I'll jump into it. As an example, the Dungeons & Dragons club that Edwink has in the afternoons, or one of the afternoons in the week, I didn't start that. It wasn't a passion, but it was a curiosity that I had. And I joined something that the students had started with other teachers. And I've really dived in deeply with that. But there are other things like the archery and the robotics, which I'm interested in. And I do automatically. And the kids have joined me in that space. My curiosity is about the dynamics of running after kids and feeling frustrated. And then you spent the money on things, etc., etc. What is your advice to parents and people who want to engage in that curiosity, what does that dynamic look and feel like? So, first of all, the word curiosity, I mean, I think it's the God particle of everything. If there, mm. was, if there was one core value I'd want my kids to have, it's Ruth's curiosity. I think there's almost no better skill to have. If we can create curiosity in our kids over almost anything else, uh, I think that's a great place to start. Uh, curiosity creates gravity, right? It like draws you into something. Mm. And, and I think that's what, you, what happened there for you is that D&D uh, area had a gravity. It drew you in. You tried it. You were open to it. You might have liked it. You might have hated it. And then you go away. Our kids at this age are fleeting from one to the next to the next. So my daughter, she uh, wanted to do jujitsu, but she changes her mind quite often. So we had to buy a gi, an outfit. We bought a family membership because we'd have to upgrade to do that. So I said to her, okay, cool, but combatives is a year. So there's a year you've got to do to learn the 36 principles. But the deal was then she's got to give me the full year. And now she already wants to, she's like halfway through and she wants to move in and she wants to do kickboxing like my son did. He did Muay Thai and he did some fights and some tournaments and things. Uh, and by the way, his other obsession is bouldering. So it was, so he does jujitsu, gaming and bouldering. My daughter does the makeup, jujitsu. Now she wants to do Muay Thai. 
she tried bouldering she didn't like it and uh but i've said to her she cannot do that because i'm not spending more money until she so i have a year Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to hold her to it like a sentence, but I do believe it's okay for us if we're spending money to to get some degree of commitment. Like there's these things need to last beyond the novelty. Mm. Richard, I'm curious about your childhood hobbies and did they kind of stop when you became a young adult and did you resume or was there an evolution, a journey from those to what you're doing now? So first of all, the most important hobby that I've ever had in my life that led to everything was reading fiction. So I started reading fiction, then I started reading fantasy. So I was reading a bunch of game books. The The series I got into was a, a series called Blood Sword. And you'd read a book and it wasn't just like choose your own adventure. You actually had to roll dice and make choices and go and fight things. From there, I decided that, okay, I want to get Dungeons and Dragons. And the funny thing about, um, so I was at a, quite a big school, and a lot of people don't want kids to be at big schools, but, the, you know, with lots of, so my, my, my year had 10 classes. And the one advantage of that is that there are more outliers. There's more space for the outliers to fit in. Uh, everybody went to felt school, and I didn't go. And I took my new, brand new red box of Dungeons and Dragons there. And two of the other kids who didn't go to felt school, there was five of us in total, walked up and said, Oh, we love that you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, but you bought the wrong box. You need to buy second edition, AD&D second edition. I started playing with them. We became friends for years and years and years and years. We role played all through into probably, I stopped for a couple of years while I was touring, but basically up until my late 20s. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons then led into Magic the Gathering. That was my most expensive obsession I've ever done. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then there was a few years where it was very, very much like I would, I would always take a little game on holiday and I would play on occasion. And then I took my son and my daughter to uh, Rage. Oh, it must be about eight or nine years ago now. And at Rage, they had a board game stand. And Richard Garfield, the founder of the guy who did, you know, created Magic the Gathering, he had designed a game called King of Tokyo. I bought that game and the obsession just reignited. But my most consistent is reading fiction. Sorry, sorry. Just I, and a lot of people don't think this is of uh, this is a hobby. I'm a, a deep introvert. For me, uh, reading fiction is like my f- probably my favorite, favorite, favorite thing to do. And I think it is the thing that's made me the smartest by far. And every fiction book I read has got monetary value, you know, two to one of a business book I read. And boredom, do you schedule some time to be bored, to let some of this stuff settle and land and and make connections for you? Uh, It's been a bit of a loss there. So that was definitely my motorcycle riding. Uh, When I would go on a ride, you know, between meetings and things like that, that's where I had all these ideas because I would just be thinking it's definitely been a bit of a loss. What I do have now, so every single day, but this again, it's actually the opposite. Every single day from 9 to 10 is vocational reading. So I read about something to do with my craft every workday from 9 to 10. I'm just trying to learn. So right now I'm going as really, really deep on, on ancient rhetoric and just trying to understand the terms and you know, the nuances of that. So I've been going, doing a lot of that. It feels like going back to school again. But what I do try to do is apply anything I learn in one day uh, you know, later on on the same day, bring it up in a meeting, bring it up in a conversation and, and you know, try to work that in. But... It's, it's not always possible, and it has been a loss. It's definitely something I should make more space for. So, Gavin, Jack's often asked me if I ever get bored, and I've got too many things to do. I'm seldom bored. Is that right, Mrs. Aitchison? 
Yeah, that's why my Dungeons and Dragons hoodie on the back instead of character name just says long suffering wife of geek. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> so boredom is a luxury and if, if kids are getting bored then they need some more hobbies and they need to to do something well the question is will you still have ruthless curiosity because i like that i think that's given what we're going to title the episode ruthless mm-hmm. curiosity, curiosity yeah. Yeah, i like that there's still a there's a, i mean there's a huge correlation in the longest study ever done it was all men but in the longest study ever done of men some of the participants you know they're starting their teens and they're now in their 90s uh, JFK was on it, things like that. They studied what, you know, the people who did the best. And it's the people who had hobbies and consistent hobbies and other things to, to keep their mind going were the happiest as a whole. Uh, and funny enough, the biggest uh, lead to, to non-happiness. And, you know, I've, I've not, I don't drink alcohol <laughs> since I was 19, but uh, is uh, alcohol. And I think that the, the problem with it is not that alco- the idea of the, trying to lubricate and dull your senses to a degree is, is maybe kind of what happens to try to tap out from the day rather than to try and tap in. This is a whole other discussion. I certainly, we always have wine at home, like I'm not judging anybody. But um, yeah, I think that by all means, do, do both. But the one really, really switches your brain on and the other helps your brain switch off. And I think if you did more of the uh, former you wouldn't need as much of the latter so richard eduink we're a small school and our extracurricular activities are not big sports fields we have a lot of sports kids and we do cater to you know elite sports kids but what we've done from the very beginning is we've created clubs in the afternoon and those clubs come together based on teacher and student curiosities and where that juncture is and some clubs last a term some last a long time some are structured by the school because of the teacher's passions, and some are generated by students. So as a departure point, you know, Dungeons & Dragons, the dungeon master is one of the students, and he drives the whole process. But the robotics is something that we use for the curriculum, but we've also created the space after school for kids to be able to join. And Mrs. Aitchison and I really believe that our jobs as the leadership of the school is to create spaces where children can explore curiosities and their passions. So if you're a robotics club member, for example, you have access to the robotics lab, that's the 3D printer, and it's expected that you have the responsibility to look after the things in that space. If you want to arrange in the holidays to come and work with projects and things that you're doing, then you can do that. If you want to arrange on the weekends, you can do that. At break time, you can go into that space. And it's exclusively available to you because of your affiliation with the club, and we don't regulate what that looks like. And often the projects and the things that are happening in that space are not specified, they're not dictated. It's more a case of, what are you building? That's interesting. What do you want to do with it type of thing? And just allowing them the space to tinker, as it were. The garage band does exactly the same thing. The equipment's there. You can go in and play whatever you want. I left school today and three of the students were busy playing, one on the drums, one on the guitar, one on the piano, and they were just tinkering around because we've created the space for them to do that. I mean, I think that's absolutely incredible. When I was at school and they found out I played Dungeons and Dragons, they, they called my parents in and tried to have an exorcism. <laughs> you know, like they, <laughs> the world has changed. Uh, but and I just, I mean, obviously, I jealously wish this was something that we had. But 
you know, I have that now. And I think that it's, it's such a pity that I, I can't imagine there's a single parent listening to this that doesn't think that's amazing. My, my, I, I think we spend a lot of time worrying about the youth. And I think we spend not nearly enough time worrying about people my age. You know, my, I'm 46, right? And I think that don't just be excited about this stuff. Like if you have that, start that in your business. Like people should be doing this in their companies and in places to, you know, to, to make play and recreational obsession a thing. Like, you know, Google says it has that, you know, that 20% time, but that's still doing work. Mm. I'm like, give people more time, like in, encourage people to have these recreational obsessions, you know, ruthless curiosity and recreational obsession. Absolutely. Yeah, Rich, we could we could talk about this all day. I love hearing what you have to say and your opinions on all of this because you do come at these things from another angle. And it's just really valuable to to just engage with you on these things. Hopefully we can get you back on the campus at some point so that the kids can see you up close and personal again. I know they'd love that. Um, once we get over this COVID hiccup and we can actually meet face to face again. I'd really like to do that. Um, but from my side, thank you. Thank you so much for spending the time and just lending us your wisdom as you do. Thank you. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks everyone for joining us today. And thank you, Richard, for helping us fill our gas tanks a little. Parents, children, don't forget to visit our YouTube channel where you can see Richard's video from a couple of years ago on campus called How to Suck Less at Public Speaking. We'll see you all again in the next podcast. Cheers. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.